Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Okay, well, good morning, everyone. We are looking at the priestly blessing this morning. This is from Numbers chapter 6, if you want to open your Bibles there. And this is just one of the most amazing passages of Scripture, which has been a a real blessing for me studying this week. If you were with us on Wednesday, I was teaching on 2 Kings, which is a sort of a very dark period in Israel's history, and there's a lot of tough material in that passage. So during the week, I've been sort of looking at some of that material and at the same time studying for Sunday, which is all to do with blessing. So it's been a, an unusual sort of study week for me in that. But I hope I can share with you some of the things that we've found out this morning. Right, let's turn to number six, and we'll just... Uh, briefly open in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time now. Lord, I pray that you would just open our eyes to see the wonders contained within your word, Lord, and that your son would be glorified through the words of my mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's just read this entire uh, blessing, and then we'll, we'll get into this. So it says, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you, and keep you the lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you the lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace so they shall invoke my name the son my name on the sons of israel and i then will bless them so very familiar text for any of you who have been in church for any amount of time it's called the priestly blessing it's called the ironic blessing it's called the benediction in a lot of churches Uh, We're all very familiar with it. You'll find it in the liturgy of pretty much every denomination, Methodist, Anglican, Baptist, at some point in the Christian church. And you'll also find it in every synagogue around the world today, still said uh, multiple, multiple times. However, I'm going to put it to us that it's probably one of those texts, a little bit like the Lord's Prayer in some ways, that we're a little bit too familiar with. And what I mean by that is that we all, we know the words, like most people can say the Lord's Prayer from school assemblies, but we haven't actually taken the time to really dig in to the precious truths that it contains. So that's really my aim for what I want to do with us this morning, try and shed some fresh light on this ancient prayer, renew its lessons in our heart. Listen to what D.L. Moody said about this text. He says, Here is a benediction that can go all the world over and can give all the time without being impoverished. Every heart may utter it because it is the speech of God. Every letter may conclude with it. Every day may begin with it. Every night may be sanctified by it. Here is blessing, keeping, shining, the uplifting upon our poor life of all heaven's glad morning. It is the Lord himself who brings this bar of music from heaven's infinite anthems. Amen. Moody had a way with words. However, before we really get into looking at this, this text in a verse-by-verse style, I want to just back up a little bit and talk to us about blessing in the Bible. You see, we know that God is a God that wants to bless, but when we actually think about what is blessing, I think it's here that sometimes we fail before we even get into it. We really fall, in the Christian church, we fall into two extremes. One is to simply reduce blessing to a mere pleasantry, like a, uh, like a greeting or like I've done it before, you know, you type an email, you know, well done, thank you for this. Blessings, Tommy, that sort of a thing. And that it kind of doesn't mean huge amounts when you use it like that. At the other end of the spectrum, you can find people selling handkerchiefs that they've blessed for extortionate amounts of money. 
and somehow it will benefit the person who coughs up the money for that. Now, they're two extremes. I want us to ignore both of them, just throw them out, let's remove any of our Christian baggage that we have at this point and focus back on what we learn from the scripture in these things. Now, blessing in the Israelite culture was taken very seriously, and we find it in the very first chapters of the Bible. Remember when Adam and Eve were made. What is God? The first thing he says to them, really, he blessed them, it says in Genesis, saying, be fruitful and multiply. He blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Remember the story of all the patriarchs. They would often confer a blessing over their sons and over their children. You remember the story of how serious it was when Jacob stole Esau's blessing. You remember that, and he causes the whole thing, whole, whole book of Genesis really is based around those things. He stole his blessing, which means there was something very important about that blessing, and it couldn't be taken back once it had done. There is something tangible, tangible about what was happening at this time. The Abrahamic covenant. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and through you, Abraham, and your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You remember when we jumped forward to the Gospels? Jesus is always going around, blessing. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the weak. Mark ten sixteen, And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. On and on you could find passages like that about Jesus. Even right to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. When you study that in the first chapter, it says, you know, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of these prophecies and blessed are those who hear it. You get a blessing just for reading the word of God in that sense. So all through the Bible, we see the preeminence of blessing. And I say you could, in reality, you could actually say blessing is a summation of the entire message of the Bible. Blessing is the act of declaring God's favor and goodness upon others, not just in words, but with the power to bring them to pass. Now, this doesn't mean that it's a mechanical formula, that you can just sort of pronounce a blessing and have it, have it be done in that sense, but clearly in the scriptures there is more than it just being words. So I don't want to sell the concept of blessing short. But we don't want to go too far the other way. Now this is, we need to get back really to the, the Hebrew roots of what this word means as, a, as it was understood in their culture. The word in Hebrew for blessing, the root word literally means to kneel down. To kneel down. So the picture we have here, the picture is of the great God of the universe bending down to touch his children with his loving hands, to kneel down. Now, some people would object um, to say that God is kneeling before us in that sense. If he's blessing us and the word means to kneel down, he is kneeling down before us, and they would say that that's almost like blasphemy. God would, you know, we kneel down to God. We're missing the point if we think like that. You see, this is not kneeling like we would do before a sovereign, this is much more intimate than that. Think of a father who comes home, or a mother, but a father, I'm doing my own context, my own experience here, you come home and your child sees you at the end of the corridor for the door and he runs over to you and what's your immediate reaction? Many of you have probably done this. You get down on your knees and you put your arms out and the child runs into your arms. That's the picture that Blessing is trying to confer to us here. And we'll see, we'll see that develop as we go through. Another related word to, he, to the Hebrew word, it's the way the Hebrew language is. Sometimes you just add one extra letter and it gives you another word in the Hebrew. That's how it works. A related word to blessing means gift or present. So you have these two connotations from the word blessing. 
to kneel down and to give a gift. God comes to us on bended knees to bless us with the good gifts of heaven. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, God humbles himself to bless those whom he loves. And is this not really the ultimate story of the Bible? Could we not say that gives a very good summation of everything that we find within the pages? Love came down. We know the song, I could sing of your love forever, uses these words. This is the principle here. You see, God came down. He came to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve, didn't he? And it says, as we've just read, that he blessed them. God came down at Sinai. He came down into the tabernacle. He came down into the temple. He came down in the person of Jesus Christ, all the while to bless us. God's love and desire is to bless his children. And that means he comes down to meet us at our level. Where we are, he wants to meet us. And it doesn't matter where you are in your walk or on your journey. God's desire is to bless And this is exactly what God did in Yeshua, in Jesus, his son. He made himself available to us by coming down to earth in the form of a man and blessing all of mankind. And we have a beautiful picture of this in the New Testament. You remember that last Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples when he rises up from the table and he walks to his disciples and then he bends down on his knee and he washes their feet. That's a picture. And in that moment, he's giving of himself as the gift, and he's teaching us how to love and serve one another. But he himself is the gift in that moment. What does the Apostle Paul say, 2 Corinthians 9, 15? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Think about that, indescribable. That word means it's too extraordinary for description. All the adjectives and all the superlatives in all the languages in all the world fall short of the necessary adequacies to describe this king of all kings. Now, as we approach Advent season, as we look at this, ble- uh, this blessing here in Numbers 6, let's remember that this gift is one that is simply beyond description. Language fails at a certain point. This is the ult- ultimate fulfillment of God's blessing, his son Jesus Christ. But as we build up to that, all throughout the Bible, we see this being revealed in various different ways as we see what God does when he blesses his people. Let me just share with you a few scriptures and a few things that come from God's blessing. Psalm 24, verse 5. Righteousness is described as one of these blessings. It says, He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Psalm 133. It is like the Jew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded blessing, life forevermore. So both righteousness and life are described as the blessing of God. Prosperity. 2 Samuel 7.29 Now therefore let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Salvation. Psalm 3 verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. The forgiveness of sins. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute 
iniquity. And then finally, peace, the word shalom. Psalm 29, verse 11, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. You see, this is the place blessing has in the Bible. It is actually very central to the Bible. Um, we've maybe lost this in the Christian church. If you, if you ever read uh, Jewish litur- liturgy, or even liturgy of actually the, old, the older sort of denominations, they have a blessing for pretty much everything. There's a blessing when you open church. There's a blessing before you read the word of God. There's a blessing when you get up in the morning. There's just a blessing for absolutely everything. Now, whilst you run the danger of that just becoming a a sort of rote prayer, there's also an element where there was a reason why it did that. And the example we have does come from the scriptures. So let's uh, sort of relook at our view of blessing here. Now, let's look a little bit more as we focus in on Numbers chapter 6. This is the priestly blessing. And we were just singing that chorus, weren't we, where we had the words three in one, father, son. Interestingly enough, in Jewish tradition, this blessing is referred to as the three in one blessing. Now, of course, they're not (laughs) talking about the Trinity there. It's because you have that threefold repetition, the Lord bless, the Lord bless, the Lord bless. But they do call it the three in one blessing. So it doesn't teach the Trinity, but I would say looking back with New Testament eyes, it certainly complements the teaching of the Trinity in that way. It is an instruction from the Lord to Aaron and his sons on how specifically they should bless the people of Israel. And one important thing about this, it is actually a prayer written by God the Father. It's actually the only prayer in the Bible written by God. Yes, we have Jesus, the Lord's Prayer, and we have the John 17 where Jesus is praying, but this is actually the only prayer that we have prescribed and exactly how to say it as a blessing in by God the Father. And I think that means we should pay particular attention to it. And interestingly enough, in 1979, Israeli archaeologists, they were digging in the Hinnom Valley, which is just outside uh, of the old city of Jerusalem, and they discovered some very old burial caves there. And in it, they found two tiny amulets. So these would be a necklace with a sort of thing rolled around it that you would wear around your neck. They found these in one of the burial sites. It took them three years, but they finally managed to unravel them without damaging them. That is what they look like there. You can see them. They are tiny. Uh, for context, this is my own personal copy from my office. It took me 20 takes to get that photo. That's honestly as good as we could get. But you can see there that, you know, they're tiny things. So they were rolled up and worn like jewellery. But one of the things is, eventually, when they did unwrap them with the technology, they noticed that written in what we call Paleo-Hebrew, so that's a very early form of the Hebrew language, was the entire text of the priestly blessing, number 6, 24, and onwards. And that means... These things date to about 7th century BC. So that's from the time when the first temple was still standing, before the Babylonian captivity, the days of of Solomon. That means they are 400 years older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. That means that the oldest biblical text in existence today is this prayer that God wrote himself on these amulets here. I just find that fascinating when I say that this is the only prayer that God actually prescribed in that manner, and it therefore is actually, in archaeological sense, the oldest piece of biblical Hebrew that we have, and it's the the priestly blessing. 
So it says, I shall put my name, notice just in verse 27, so I haven't got the slide, but you can read it if you're in number six. The final verse, 27, says, so they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And that's quite a, an unusual blessing. That's sort of the instruction to the priests rather than the actual blessing. Now again, Jewish tradition interprets this in a fascinating way. One of the names for this blessing in Hebrew, and you'll find this in Messianic uh, congregations today, so Jews who, who believe in Jesus, they still do this and they call it this. The name of the blessing is called the lifting of hands, the lifting of the hands. It's not a description of what they do. They do do that, but it's actually a title for the blessing. That will become significant later. So you the priests of the temple, they would stand before the temple facing the people, the children of Israel, and they would place their hands together like this. I can't do it, but you, you can pretty much see there. And the idea is it forms the letter Shin, which is a Hebrew word that became known in Jewish tradition as an abbreviation for God, for God's name, in fact, because Shaddai, one of God's names there. So that is what it, that's what it was. They formed this letter. They came out in front of the temple and they stood there and they did this. And they taught that actually in the early days when they were doing this in the days of Solomon, the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the temple would shine so brightly through them that they would be standing there and the Shekinah glory would be shining behind them and it would cast the shadow of this letter Shin upon the people, so quite literally putting the, God's name upon the people. A little bit like that. That's a photo from the Temple Institute, a painting. That's, you can see the, the Kohanim, the priests there, making that symbol as they stand up and they do that. And to this day, people do this all over the world in synagogues today. Now, you don't get the Shekinah glory shining through, but it's, it's actually considered to be the longest and only connection with the modern synagogue right back through to the Temple of Solomon in this time. And we see this showing up in popular culture in a number of ways. Now, some of you might recognise the slight look of that hand symbol. Any Star Trek fans among us? I'm not going to make you put your hands up, but there are probably a few. You might recognise that. Now, if he did the same with his other hand and put his hands together, it would look pretty much like that, wouldn't it? Now, Leonard Nimoy, the character who plays Stockler, he's, he's Jewish upbringing, and when he was asked to come up with the Vulcan salute... He thought back, he tells this story, to his days in synagogue where he would see the priests doing the priestly blessing and they would be doing that symbol and that's simply all he did. He just took that symbol there. And if you know in the, in the Star Trek, he'll say live long and prosper. That is actually a valid translation of Numbers 6. It's just a very loose dynamic equivalent, but that is basically the, priest, the priestly blessing. So in that way, the priestly blessing went out through all the universe... I'm joking, that's not... <laughs> but it's just an interesting way there that you see this uh, coming into the culture. But that is the priestly blessing. So let's look at the text more closely now. The name of the Lord. Now you see it three times in this verse, don't you? Um, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. You see these verses. We need to understand what this means a little bit. You see, in our context, the name is just a name. It's almost like a title. It doesn't necessarily mean huge amounts. You have to get to know the person really, to get to know someone. In Hebrew culture, that was a little different. Names were much, much more significant. That's why picking the name of the firstborn child and all these things had huge impact in the Middle Eastern culture, and they still do today in some ways. But the name of God, Hashem, as they would say, the sacred name, speaks, it's not just a title. It's supposed to represent and speak of everything that God is. This is why we see so many different names for God, every one of them revealing a different bit of his character to us. 
The name was a blessing to display his character, his nature, his very being in and through his people here in Numbers chapter 6 because he says to the sons of Aaron, this is how you are to bless the people. But I think it's very important for us that we allow ourselves to follow the progression of God in scriptures up to this point because quite often we jump in at the end of the book and we backtrack, if you see what I mean. We know Jesus and then we sort of try and fit little bits of the Old Testament into what we kind of understand about Jesus. I'm not saying that's anything wrong with that, but I'm saying if we actually want to follow and come up to the point here where this priestly blessing is given, I want us just to see what revelation of God we have before the priestly blessing comes. So this means we need to go first to the book of Genesis. You see, remember, this is the, the God. When it says the Lord, this is the God who first spoke the heavens into existence by the word of his power. Let there be light. He spoke the universe into existence. This is the creator God, Elohim, they call him. This is the God who came to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve, offering himself in such intimate fellowship with his creatures, with his creations, that it says he literally just walked with them in the garden. This is the same God who came to Abraham and told him, made that covenant with him, and said, this is how I'm going to bless the entire world through you and your descendants. This is the covenant-keeping God of Israel. This is the same God who manifested his presence to Moses in the burning bush, and when he said, I am who I am, when he revealed to his people his intimate and personal name. This is the God who came down to rest on Mount Sinai as a consuming fire, This is the one who hid Moses in the cleft of the rock at that time and delivered the commandments to him. And then even after the sin of the golden calf, just shortly after that event, this is the same God who came down again to Moses and gave more revelation of himself in that famous verse in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. He said, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The compassionate source of all life, this is the almighty, the omnipotent, the merciful, gracious, patient, overflowing God with love and truth, the one who is loyal to his covenant, quick to forgive, yet still concerned with justice and holiness. And that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? But this is God the Father we're talking here in the Old Testament. This is the God who in Deuteronomy 10.14 it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heavens and the highest heavens and all that is in them. It says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise, he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. This is the God who we have in our minds, who the Israelites will have in their minds when it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. And I think this is so important because we often hear the dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament God. The Old Testament God is such a God of wrath. Everything horrible happens in the Old Testament. We just want to follow the New Testament because it's it's where we get the nice stuff. I understand why that's done. But if we allow ourselves to slip into that mindset, because that's often how uh, critics and, and if we're honest ourselves, sometimes when we're reading the Old Testament, we notice the sort of the differences in, in what we're reading. 
But we mustn't allow ourselves to think that that is a, a valid distinction because these verses that I've just read, and we could read many more like that, reveal a God who is not like that. That's a wrong way of thinking. What we see of God in the Old Testament revealed to us is a God who wants to come down and bless. Now, the reason we have those other elements in the Old Testament that are unpalatable to our ears is because people choose to refuse that blessing and put themselves under the curse. And this is the history of Israel, the history of mankind. That's what happens. But the primary desire of God is to come down and bless. I think we need to remember that. And I also want to just make a cultural application a little bit as we're talking about the name of God. As we think about those we are trying to reach with the message of the gospel, what do they think about when they hear the word God? For the Israelites, it was fairly obvious at this time. But for today, it's not so obvious. We see this in the New Testament. You remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up, day of Pentecost, and he delivers that famous sermon, and he's primarily speaking there to Jews. He quotes their scriptures. He shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic tradition that you know, stretches all through the Torah. It's a very pointed sermon towards these people, but they understand what he's talking about. They have the background, the foundation. You can say scripture and quote revelation and speak of God, and they're all on the same page as far as the context that is happening. The biblical context provides the, the foundational worldview for these people. That's Acts chapter 2. Yet you see when you get to Acts chapter 17 and we have Paul preaching to philosophers in Athens who have a completely different foundation, a completely different worldview and set of assumptions that they bring to the text. What is their response? It's not the same as what happened on the day of Pentecost, people repenting of their sins. They don't even really understand that concept. What do they say? It says in Acts chapter 17, they simply say, what would this idle babbler say to us? He seems to be proclaiming strange deities, plural. And you, under, you see how their context is totally different, that they, the majority of them missed what he was saying. So, you see, his preaching, the preaching style we see in the Bible is very different when he's reasoning, this is for Paul, when he's reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, you could imagine he's speaking very much like, he, like Peter did on the, the, uh, in Acts chapter 2 showing the Messiah as the fulfilment of their scriptures. But when he's speaking to a room of Richard Dawkins, these pagan philosophers, so to speak, he does something very different. He starts by revealing God anew to them. He picks this, you know the story, the unknown God, and then he begins explaining God, beginning with creation, the God who created the world. He has to start and build the picture of God progressively again through the revelation that we have in Scripture. And this is a big application, I believe, for us in the Western world. You see, the Western world is the Christianized part of the world. Our culture used to be like the Jews in Acts chapter 2. We had that common Christian foundation. The Christian scaffolding of our beliefs and our institutions were built upon the Judeo-Christian worldview. You could go out and you could preach and people would understand the context. That's how the Western world has generally always been up until very recently. But I would say today the culture has changed. We are more like the Greeks in Acts chapter 17 now. The problem is the church on many situations is still speaking to people like they are the Jews, if you understand what I'm talking about there. And because of that, which is why we're seeing this massive cultural disconnect between the church and the culture, the shift was illustrated for me very clearly when Billy Graham died last year, uh, 2018. There was one news report that I read it's from Yahoo News. It says, there will never be 
another Billy Graham, then look, because the world that made him possible is gone. And then you read the article, and what this secular reporter is picking up on, the cultural shift would not allow another situation like that because Billy Graham was the Bible says man. The Bible says, the Bible says. He was speaking generally to a culture that still had that foundation. He was generally speaking to to a culture like Acts chapter 2. And things have changed so radically now that often we are like in Acts chapter 7. Now, that's not to say God can't use any means and any method throughout any period in history. He does do that all the time. But the culture has shifted and I believe we need to take a step back and think about how we are revealing God to a culture. And one of the best ways to do this is to make sure that we have revealed God to ourselves and we have accepted all of the progressive revelation about God, not just starting with the New Testament. I would say it's much better to go back right to the book of Genesis and build through, and you'll get this picture of God, this covenant-keeping, loyal God who wants to come down and bless. And then when you get to the New Testament and you get face-to-face with that full revelation of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ, it'll have so much more depth and meaning to who he is the things he did the things he says and ultimately what he predicts will come to pass in the future so this is why i believe it's so important that when we say the lord we have in our minds the right perception of who we're talking about and the only way we can do that is not from the imaginations of our own heart which is what most people want to do because we change god to fit our own desires our own wills the things we want to do that he won't worry about, we just change him. We cannot do that. It's got to be the God revealed to us in the scripture. Let's go back to the text. The Lord bless you and keep you. So let's look at the threefold blessing now. Now the sages of Israel interpreted this first part to be physical blessings, material prosperity. Now we think of material prosperity and immediately we think to the sort of just the crude element of having loads of money. And we think of TV preachers and all these things that we see. Again, just remove that from your mind for one moment. This was individual. You notice that although this is a corporate blessing in one sense, it's very, the word there, bless you, is individual. It's singular in the Hebrew. The Lord bless you. So there is a personal element. And the sages would say that this blessing is dependent on the physical and individual needs of each person who is hearing it right down to whatever they're doing. A businessman, he needs customers for his business. A student needs the blessing of uh, intellect and memory for their studies. A parent needs patience and wisdom to raise their children. On and on. Practical wisdom that you see there, not just material prosperity in the sense of money. And I think it's true. This is what it is. They they would get that from the, the part that says you need to keep it, which implies that in some way it could be lost, which they would say is sort of physical blessings in that sense. Now, the word keep you, It means to guard, basically. The root, again, the root Hebrew word literally means to hedge about with thorns. You might have heard someone pray that. I've heard people pray that. Lord, just, you know, put your hedge of protection around him. It's a very common sort of Christianese speak. And it's very good. This is where it comes from. This this word here gives us this meaning. And it was originally a sort of context of a shepherd's word, as they would could have put their sheep in, in some sort of enclosure for the night, that hedge of protection. And then it says, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. This is the second part of the blessing. Now, this was not physical blessings. The sages said this was spiritual blessings. You could translate this. A valid translation would be to say, may the Lord illuminate his countenance upon you. Now, light is often a metaphor for the word of God. That shouldn't be unfamiliar to us. Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light. 
Psalm 119, the unfolding of your word gives light. There are many scriptures like this that speak of light as the word of God. So when people see light in this blessing, one of the conclusions is that this blessing has to do here with the word of God, which is spiritual revelation and spiritual blessings. One rabbi even puts it like this. May God enlighten you so that you will be capable of perceiving the wondrous wisdom of the Torah and God's intricate creation. Now that sounds very familiar to a prayer that David prayed in the Psalms. Lord, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your word. Very, very similar there. But yet we have more. It says, make his face shine upon you. Seeing God's face. What does it mean to have God's face shining upon us? Speaking of his glory, his presence. You see, the word refers really to one's entire being as revealed in his face. You can tell a lot by someone from looking at their face. The idea is you can see their demeanor, whether they're angry, annoyed, all these sorts of things you can tell from looking at someone's face. And God requires his children seek his face. Psalm 27, verse 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek speaks about seeing God in all the wondrous manifestations that he gives us in scripture. I read Psalm 24 this morning. It said this, He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. It goes on, Who is the king of glory? The Lord. Same word that we have in number six of hosts. He is the king of glory. It is his face that we seek. Now, where do we find this illuminating light that reveals God's face to us? Yes, in creation around us, there is a measure of it. Most importantly, in Scripture. Yes, we see it clearly in some ways in Scripture. But most fully, we see it in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he is the radiance of his glory, it says in Hebrews, doesn't it? And the exact representation of his nature. This is the background, I believe, that Paul has in his mind when in 2 Corinthians he says this, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, so that's a quote from Genesis going all the way back, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So we see that ultimate manifestation in the face of Christ Jesus. And ultimately, when it says, The Lord's face shine upon you, That's what we're talking about here. Now, it says, The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Now, simply put, what does the face of Adonai, the face of our Lord, radiate? Grace. That's why grace is so central, not just in the New Testament. Grace is all throughout the Bible. Grace is the foundation of why God wants to come down and bless us all the time. This is what we're talking about here. And look at this next verse. Verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Now, you might have noticed that countenance and face are the actual, the, the same word. And they can, you know, if you're reading an NIV, I think you'll have the word face there. There's a very interesting observation that the sages make on this verse. It could be translated like this. The Lord lift, his, lift up his face upon you. And they note something here. It's very similar to what we were talking about earlier. Having in mind everything that we've just said about who God is and what his face represents, if God is to lift his face up to us, that means that he is below us at this moment, if you see what I mean. To look up to us. Now again, some people would say, hang on, what are you saying there? Is God below us? Like they did when I used, did that first illustration. Let's go back to that first illustration and you'll understand exactly what this verse is getting at here. Remember that father in the hallway 
arms on his knees, arms run, child runs into his arms. And again, as a, as a dad, I'm sure most of you dads have done this again. In that moment, what's the very next thing that that dad often will do? He'll do the hug and then he'll pick up that child and he'll hold him up like that. That is the picture that we are getting here with a kneeling down God who blesses and then one who turns his face up towards us. And what do you, if you look at that moment, what will you see on the father's face? Usually a big beaming smile. And what will you see if you look at the child's face at that moment? The same thing. The child will connect with the father there and you'll be smiling at each other. And again, you've probably done, I've done this. I know this happens just so naturally. And this is the picture that God has for us in the Bible here. This is the relationship that God wants with his people. This is the God that blesses us. And then it says he lifts up his face towards you and he gives you peace. The end of this blessing is peace. Now, in Hebrew, this is the word shalom. This is the highest blessing in the Hebrew mind. The root of this word means to make restitution or to make amends or to fix that which is deficient, you could say. To make complete. It has connotations of rest, security, tranquility, prosperity, well-being, and spiritual wholeness. It's a very rich word and concept in the Hebrew. That's why you say shalom so much in the Hebrew culture. This is what it's getting at. The final part of this blessing makes known God's heart that God longs for his people to be made whole with his whole countenance, with his whole face. That is his whole being is for his people to be whole in that sense. This is the Lord's blessing. And you can see why just in these three verses, I believe it's one of the the most amazing portions of scripture that we have Now, let me finish this. Let's turn to Luke chapter 24, please. And we'll look at something and make a little application here. Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. So this is the, the last verses in the Gospel of Luke. This is the ascension. He's done the cross. He's done the resurrection. This is the ascension. And it says this. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And look. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. Remember I said that that was a a, a way to designate a particular blessing, the lifting up of hands in that sense. Not the laying on of hands like you'll usually find in the text when someone's blessing. This is the lifting up of hands. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually praising God in the temple. He blesses them by lifting up the hand. Now, most scholars presume that Christ here finishes his earthly ministry in this sense by giving the priestly blessing upon his disciples. Now, now Christ wasn't a son of Aaron in that sense, but he was a priest. He was a priest after a much higher order, the priesthood of Melchizedek. This is the heavenly priesthood in that sense. And now, in this moment, he lifts up his hands, and I would, would probably imagine he's doing that same distinctive shape, and I'd imagine as the heavens were opening here and he was beginning to be carried up, that Shekinah glory was shining through again, just as it did at Sinai, just as it did in the tabernacle and in the temple. And Jesus here, the Prince of Peace, imparts this blessing upon his disciples. Because his was a life that radiated this message, the Lord give you peace. When Jesus came into the earth, what did the shepherds sing? Peace on earth 
amongst and glory amongst all men. And what did he say in John and the Gospel? His final words, peace I give to you, peace I leave with you. This blessing that we find here. His whole life is surrounded by this. And peace is, a, again, so it's a massive word. There's so many connotations. Like I said, it's referring to spiritual wholeness in one sense, which is why here this is happening after he's sort of moved into his priestly ministry. He came as a prophet when he was teaching and he was predicting the future. And then he transitioned, didn't he, to that, that priest and he gave himself as a sacrifice, which was a priestly offering. And now we see as he's ascending to heaven, he continues in that ministry of priest and he pronounces this blessing upon the people and he goes up into heaven and he doesn't finish his priestly ministry. It says that he forever lives to make intercession for us. That is a priestly ministry that he has there. Now, when we read this blessing from number six, in many ways, we can really read that as if Jesus is speaking that to us today, because in many ways he is. But there's more to it than that, because now, under the greater glory of the new covenant, we are also said to be priests. The book of 1 Peter, it says that we are a royal priesthood. We are a people that are supposed to bless one another in that sense. We are supposed to pronounce blessings on our families, on our churches, on our people. This is what we are supposed to do, and we have the priesthood of Christ as authority for that. It says in 1 Peter 2 that we are a royal priesthood so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. The excellencies of him. And you will miss what those excellencies are, I would say, unless you have done what we've done this morning and gone right back to that first instance, that first revelation of God in the book of Genesis and built your picture and understanding of God through the scriptures until you get to that final, full manifestation that we have of God's face, the face of Jesus Christ. This is why Christ can stand there and say in the scroll of the book, it is written about me. Now, what effect should this blessing have? What should characterize a people who have been blessed in this way? We see that, I believe, in these last two verses of the Gospel of Luke. Firstly, it says immediately after this, they worshipped. What more could they do to act, actually have the Lord of the universe pronouncing the priestly blessing, maybe in the first person, upon them as the Lord? They worshipped. They ascribed glory and honour to the only thing that they could do in that moment. But then it also says they returned to Jerusalem. In many ways, they, sort of, they had to get on with doing stuff. But they were changed. It says they had great joy and they were continually praising God. And I think this is something to remember because often in Christian circles, maybe we have a, a sort of a tendency to think that when we come to God, we must be somber. It must be a time of, sort of almost like penance, of just like mourning over our sin. And don't misunderstand me, there's a time for that. But if you look at it in the structure of ancient worship, that actually happened really before, that was the outer court element. That was the, the altar comes first, where sin is dealt with. And then as you get closer to the Lord, it's actually joy, because in his presence is fullness of joy. And it says here they had the blessing, they worshipped, their sins are dealt with at this time, and then they were filled with joy and they went around praising and thanksgiving which is why in the psalm so often you'll see we enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. It all flows from the blessing of the Lord. Let me just read a few scriptures and then we'll close. Isaiah chapter 9 says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. 
You notice, I hope you think about light shining in a slightly different way now. When it's coming from God, it's talking about the blessing of God shining upon them. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. The Lord give you peace. And then it says, So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then... I will bless them, is how that blessing ends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for just these three short lines of Scripture, Lord God. And we would ask that you would bless us in our lives, uh, in in what we do with our works, with our spiritual lives, Lord, uh, in our congregations, our families, and our fellowships, Lord God. We pray that upon ourselves. We thank you, Lord, that you are worthy. And we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.